Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The increase in the number of infections make vaccination even more important. Ein großer Wunsch für 2022. Bleiben wir zusammen. The euro has come a long way. Alors, à partir de minuit... La France prendra la présidence de l'Union européenne. Welcome to EU Confidential and to our first episode of 2022. I'm Rim Mumtaz, political senior correspondent in France, sitting in for Andrew Gray this week. We hope that you all had a healthy and restful holiday and we're excited to be back and kick off what's expected to be another eventful year in European politics. At the top of the podcast, you heard from various European leaders with their messages heading into the new year. Commission President Ursula von der Leyen marking one year since the EU began its vaccine campaign and the challenges we still face as the Omicron variant continues to spread. Germany's new Chancellor Olaf Scholz sharing his wish for 2022 that we stick together in the face of societal challenges. European Council President Charles Michel celebrating 20 years since the euro came into circulation. And French President Emmanuel Macron kicking off the start of his country's presidency of the Council of the EU, which began on January 1st. We'll get into all of these themes as we look ahead to the big political stories of 2022 and bring you some fun New Year's resolutions for European politicians. Also, later in the podcast, you'll hear from one of the EU's top tech lobbyists, Siada El Ramli. She's the head of DOT Europe, which stands for Digital, Online and Tech in Europe, and represents the likes of Facebook, Google, Apple and other big and smaller players. She discusses one of Europe's most debated pieces of legislation, the Digital Services Act, which aims to set the rules of the road for online platforms. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. I'm delighted to kick off the year with our chief policy correspondent, Sarah Wheaton. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Reem. And our chief Brussels correspondent, David Hurstenhorn. Hi, David. Hi there. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You're both in Brussels and joining us from Berlin, our chief Europe correspondent, Matt Karnichnik. Hello, hello. Happy New Year. So as we look ahead to this year, I'd like each one of you to give me two or three top news agenda items. What are you looking out for? What kept you up at night, even during these holidays, while you maybe digested all that chocolate and turkey and wine? Let's start with you, David. Well, clearly, we're watching the Ukrainian border and Vladimir Putin's intentions vis-a-vis uh, -vis his neighbor, uh, which he seems to want to swallow up in one way or another. Uh, everybody. Wait, uh, are you telling us breaking news here that you have an insight into his intentions? I think we know what 
Putin believes sort of in his inner being about Ukraine, which is that it's not a a real country, that it should be part of a greater Russian revanchist empire. But we know there are negotiations coming up uh, starting in Geneva next week, and this will be a continuing issue. Obviously, the big question is, what if these negotiations don't go anywhere? Because some of the demands that the Kremlin has been making are just impossible uh, for the United States and the West as a whole to deliver. Connected to that, uh, this year we're supposed to get a new Secretary General of NATO, and Jens Stoltenberg will be wrapping up. So by mid-year, we expect to have new leadership at the alliance. And then getting later into the year, uh, I'm watching uh, elections back in the U.S., midterm elections that could paralyze things even further. It's hard to imagine uh, the Biden administration facing yet even more gridlock and obstruction. Uh, Some of that has come from their own Democrats, but certainly uh, if they suffer losses, as many people expect in Congress in November, that will change the landscape completely. And that, of course, is a big deal for Europe and the rest of the world as the president of the United States is limited in sort of what he can accomplish. So I just want to sort of follow up with you on that. What, how would you expect Biden to, to deal with that? How would his positioning towards Europe change if that is the case? It's a good question about his positioning toward Europe in terms of his positioning at home. I mean, he he basically ends up being stuck. But, you know, it may be that uh, Europe gets a little bit more attention as he's thwarted on the home front that he can actually think about the rest of the world. Sarah, what about you? I mean, David's were very political, very geostrategic uh, concerns or or agenda items. What's on your mind? So predictably, I am here to bring up coronavirus. I think that year three will involve more of the type of thing that we saw with Omicron as far as we have these variants, we freak out about them, they end up being a mixed bag as far as maybe being more infectious, but obviously affecting us less and less because of higher vaccination, higher existing immunity due to prior infection. But I think that year three is really going to be about political upheaval over the virus, because due to these changes, you'll have some camps that continue to say, look, we need to keep doing these measures like distancing, like closing things, working from home, wearing masks. But you're going to have a more and more vocal group saying, hey, this isn't such a big deal anymore. We can't take this anymore. What's the justification for this? And you'll start seeing it getting more and more aggressive. The other thing that, of course, we need to watch is what happens with the EU as far as taking action on health. More generally, there's been a lot of talk about whether the coronavirus will get will allow the EU to have more health powers. To be really honest, I don't see that happening. We're already seeing signs that countries are going back to their original position of wanting to keep control of their own medicine regulation, of their own health budgets. And so I think this might be one of those crises that Brussels is not able to capitalize on. What about you, Matt? Do you have comment about that? I think the coronavirus issue is going to go away this year. This is my big prediction. This time next year, we will not be talking about coronavirus. I'm glad we're recording this because this is a bold, bold thing you're saying. I'm going out on a limb here. I'm going out on a limb here. I, I think it will... So what is that based on? You know, my life experience. <laughs> um, everything that I've heard recently suggests there's hope that, you know, we could be moving towards a situation where the pandemic is effectively over. We don't have to worry about it in the same way. 
We still might need um, shots and what have you. But I don't think that these political issues will remain because I think that they will go away with the virus. That's my one prediction. The other prediction is that the Russia standoff will also go away, that Putin is uh, more or less going to pull back. He has what he wanted. He's got this big meeting now in Geneva next week with the U.S., and he has, you know, everybody freaking out. Everyone is sort of trying to find a way to to please him, it seems, at the moment, which is exactly what he's wanted. He's destabilized Europe further. So, you know, I think this is just one of these bouts of insanity that he has every few years, and then he'll retreat uh, again. Or maybe it's not insanity. Maybe he's smarter than all of us, which I wouldn't... Uh, I mean, I would be careful about, you know, bringing in sort of insanity into, into our analysis because, you know, Putin has shown that he has savvy political instincts. But I want to bring in David here because, David, you were in the Ukraine about a month ago, and I'd love to hear what you were told by the Ukrainians. Do they, do they share Matt's feeling? I don't think they share Matt's feeling, uh, I don't think, <laughs> except for the Putin is crazy part. Uh, for some people, the fact that he's been in office so long and that he's headed potentially toward a retirement, of a transition of some kind, eventually it has to happen, makes people worried that perhaps uh, some sort of exertion of Russian control or further Russian invasion, because of course Russia has invaded Ukraine, is part of his sort of concept of what his legacy ought to be. So um, it would be great, I think, for the uh, the entire world if Matt is right and there's sort of this was all just a temper tantrum. Yeah, but I don't think it would be great for Ukraine either way. I think that Ukraine remains very sort of destabilized area, which is exactly what he wanted. But beyond a meeting, you know, a high level meeting with Biden, what do you think he actually gets concretely? Well, I think that he shows that he is the one who is driving the agenda here. And it's been interesting in the last uh, couple of weeks to see how the EU has reacted to this, you know, the degree to which they're upset that they don't have a seat at the table in Geneva next week. And how do you see the new German government and perhaps this new era of German politics dealing with Putin? Is there any change on that level? Uh, no, I think it'll be more of the same. I think that they will go even further to try to mollify him which is also the tradition of the Social Democrats, the party of Olaf Scholz, the, the new chancellor, because they believe and have believed for decades that the way to deal with Russia is through these detente policies that go back to the 1970s. They've been very reluctant to impose more sanctions. They were opposed to the original round of sanctions. So I don't think that there's any appetite in Germany for a harder line. They also have, obviously, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline that we've talked a lot about, which is the brainchild of Schultz's party, the Social Democrats, and they remain very wedded to that project. Just to put a button on, on Matt's sort of Putin as insane or crazy thing, if the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result, I mean, he's definitely not insane because he just keeps doing these provocations and making his point. And Europe doesn't really do that much to change its policy towards him. So it sounds like Putin's doing, he has a good mental health check to start the new year. I think there is a real test for the EU here, because what he wants is a table where you see the United States, Russia, China, France, and the UK. And the EU 
as it were, doesn't have that seat. Now, whether France steps up and uh, recognizes that it has to be serious about being a nuclear power is a different question. But there is this, and I, and I agree with Sarah there, he's not so crazy. He is shifting the conversation. I mean, Biden's pivot away from uh, Russia really focusing on Asia and China is something that doesn't, you know, Putin then starts to become irrelevant and Russia becomes irrelevant. Uh, at the same time, you talk about Nord Stream 2, you know, the, the entire of Europe and the world is trying to get away from the, the few things that Russia sells, oil and gas. And so there is a logic here and there is a, a, a real test at this moment for the West about whether they let Putin set that table. That brings me actually back to sort of my French perspective from Paris, where clearly this issue is top of the agenda, no question in terms of foreign policy. But there are two major events that are definitely going to be dominating every single day of my life for the next year, which is one, of course, the French presidential election in April, and two, the French presidency of the Council of the EU. And both of these are, one, colliding with each other, because they're happening around the same time, and two, bringing up all sorts of identity crises and neuroses in French society. And that big sort of political storm in an electoral teacup that happened over the EU flag being hoisted under the Arc de Triomphe uh, on January 1st to mark the beginning of the French EU presidency uh, is only an amuse-bouche for what is going to come ahead. And I actually wanted to ask you, David, one question about a big element, a big agenda element on on the EU presidency level, which is rule of law issues. How do you see that going forward with Hungary and Poland having behaved the way they did in 2021? There's no question that's going to be a, a really big issue. But before, before we jump to rule of law, Reem, I have to tell you, we can only give you half a year. Unless the French decide <laughs> to go the hanging Chad route, there will be a result in that election. And the French presidency, despite Emmanuel Macron perhaps wanting to make it forever, will end on July 1. So you get half a year for these obsessions. But do you think that the resulting consequences won't take up the rest of the year? You are sorely mistaken. The, the resulting consequences will take up the rest of your life. Don't worry about that. <laughs> uh, now, back to rule of law. There's there's no question we saw sort of a remarkable development, uh, one of Angela Merkel's parting gifts, shall we say, and we'll let Matt jump in to say if it was a, a gift or a, a cross to bear, and that is that she backed the entire EU away from a really serious confrontation with Poland at her last European Council summit, recognizing that structurally the EU treaties don't have sufficient mechanisms to deal with the confrontation that has existed about rule of law with Poland and Hungary. A lot will depend on the new German government, how tough they want to get in terms of this confrontation, how much folks are willing to go beyond what will be some very important key uh, judicial decisions, court decisions from the European Court of Justice. Part of Merkel's argument in backing everyone away from this confrontation was that there are some decisions coming from the Court of Justice about key questions here, including uh, the legality of a mechanism, a budgetary mechanism for enforcing rule of law provisions that the EU tried to create in its big rescue and recovery plan. Once those decisions come forward, then the question is if, as we expect the court essentially sides in the favor of Brussels, will Warsaw and Budapest respect those decisions? If they don't, then the EU may be headed for a real crisis. 
Yeah, real showdown there. I will add one thing before we move on to my favorite part of every uh, New Year's episode, which is the New Year's resolutions for uh, European politicians. I will add what we like to call, and in the wise words of Donald Rumsfeld reference, I'm sure Matt loves, the unknown unknowns. Uh, what is it that we are not foreseeing and not expecting and that will blow up in our faces? In 2020, it was the killing of Qasem Soleimani in Iraq and everyone thought there was going to be World War III. We don't, that didn't happen. But what might happen this year? What's happening on the JCPOA negotiation levels? What will Kim Jong-un do? Does he want another moment in the sun? Will Emily in Paris be renewed for a fourth season? I mean, all sorts of very important, you know, unknown unknowns. But beyond that, I do want uh, to ask you in a kind of quick fire round, what would be your New Year's resolutions that you would recommend to European politicians? I'm going to start with you, Sarah. So no more Friday night document dumps. My colleagues dealing with energy and environment issues had to deal with this New Year's Eve leak of this document that sounds very technical, but is quite important on taxonomy. Look, I'm an American living in Europe. You are supposed to have respect for time off, do things only at a civilized hour. And so no more of these last minute things that you try to sneak through without a lot of news coverage. Politicians, own up to your policies, own up to your scandals. Let's talk about them nine to five, Monday through Friday. Wow, that is a tall order. Matt, what about you? Well, my resolution is connected to the whole situation in, in Ukraine and Russia, actually, and it would be for people like Josep Borrell and the leading center-right Bavarian politician Manfred Weber, who has been complaining for days about the fact that Europe is not taken more seriously and is not included in these negotiations with Russia and the United States. I think that you know, Europe needs to stop pretending that it is something that it isn't. Stop pretending. All right. And David? Uh, Matt has a really good one. I, we were along similar lines, so I'm going to have to think oh, I still of yours. another one. I ah. think one is, I mean, for them to be comfortable in their own skin is the way I would put it, which is that there is a constant effort to, again, seek a seat at the table or think that they have a hard power capability that they don't as yet. You know, maybe the corresponding resolution would be to wish for them to find their strategic autonomy, uh, whatever that is, defined in a way that maybe is more reasonable than some folks define it. Okay, well, mine is much more local, but I do want to tell perhaps French politicians more than European politicians, but this might actually apply to others. If you have neuroses, go work them out on a shrink's couch. Don't try to cause civil war in your own countries. That might be good. Thank you so very much to all three of you. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I guess we can do an episode at the end of the year to see whether uh, Matt's predictions came through and whether the politicians actually listened to our resolution recommendations. Sarah, David, Matt, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Before we get to our discussion on EU tech policy, a quick thank you. In our last episode before the break, we said that the greatest gift you could give us would be a nice rating or even a review. And many of you did just that. From the UK to the Netherlands, Belgium to the United States, wherever you are listening, we just want to say thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Now, right after this, we'll turn to our discussion on the EU's attempt to regulate tech platforms. Stay with us. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. At the end of last year, our technology reporter Clotilde Goujard sat down with Siad Al Jamli, the Director General of Dot Europe, to discuss the latest developments at the EU level to regulate online platforms. I'm going to hand things over now to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, to set things up. Hi, Clotilde. Hi. So I was wondering if you could tell us just briefly who we're going to hear from and why you thought it would be interesting to speak with her. And then we'll get into some of the details about what you guys talked about. Mm-hmm. So we talked with Sierra Al-Ramley, who's the director general of Dot Europe. Uh, tech lobby with uh, 22 members, including some of the biggest tech companies like Amazon, Facebook, Apple. Um, it also has Twitter, TikTok, uh, all the names out there. So um, it's pretty powerful. It has a budget of almost over half a, a million euros and is um, is very actively lobbying in the Brussels bubble on a lot of files, including the Digital Services Act, which is the uh, European content moderation law. Right. So we're going to hear a lot about that in your conversation. So can you give us just a brief update on where things stand with the Digital Services Act? So the, um, the commission presented the Digital Services Act, the DSA, in December 2020. So about a, a year ago, it's been going very fast. It's it's very impressive. Um, the idea was to create rules for all sorts of tech companies to um, create rules to make it easier for countries, for example, to request um, these companies to take down illegal content, like, for example, uh, terrorist content or child pornography. Then there's another some parts of the rules that are about the way to moderate content, the way to handle everything that circulates on their platforms. And so you said that the legislation has been moving really swiftly. So where do things stand at this point? Yeah, thanks. Good question. <laughs> so um, countries, EU countries, which are represented in the council, reached their position on the text in uh, late November. So they're ready to negotiate. On the other side, we have Parliament. As of now, Parliament uh, reached its position in the lead committee. However, it is slated to vote as an institution, as the Parliament, later this month. So it hasn't quite finalized its opinion on the text, but it's getting there. And once it has its opinion, both institutions will be able to negotiate with the help of the Commission to find the final rules. And so that process, as 
we lovingly call it in Brussels is called a trilogue, right? Trilogue, yes. My editors hate this word for very good reasons, I think. Okay, great. So let's kick off with hearing what Siada had to say about Dot's positions on some of these main issues, and then we'll dive into some of the highlights from the rest of the interview. If we zoom in a little bit more on the Digital Services Act, which is a file that you've been um, very actively engaged in, Parliament is getting closer to finalizing its position. When the lead lawmaker on the bill first released her ideas on the text, uh, Da Europe called some of her proposals unclear, unfair, and unworkable. Um, to summarize it for our listeners, uh, Crystal Schaldemose, who's a Danish social democrat, had very specific ideas. She wanted a 24-hour deadline for tech companies to take down uh, some serious illegal content. She wanted more legal responsibilities for online platforms. And just more generally, she wanted more privacy for users online and just some tougher rules for, for tech companies, small and big. What do you think of the draft parliament text as of now? So I think it's much improved to some of the a text that we have seen in the run-up to the lead committee's vote. I think that the, the compromises that have been made between various groups have been very um, a lot more balanced and actually provide a good starting point to go into trilogues. It's coming a bit closer to the direction of travel that the council has followed as well and also working on the core issues mainly of the Commission's proposal. And so all of those elements together will make trilogues actually possible because we're not starting with positions that are completely 180 degrees from one another. So uh, cautiously optimistic is where I am at the moment. Okay, so <laughs> far from the unworkable and unclear position yeah. you Yeah, and the, re the reason that we had that those comments was because the obligations that were being introduced weren't ever part of the evidence base that was put into the work of the Commission to prepare this proposal. Some of the areas, and I've always gone on record on that as well, I said where there are concerns, like, for example, the introduction of more obligations on marketplaces or the introduction of more work towards targeted advertising and a potential ban on targeted advertising. If this is something where policy is needed, then it wasn't the moment to be adding it into a DSA proposal that's setting a framework for how to deal with content moderation. There are lots of opportunities for verticals. Yeah. Isn't that a typical strategy, though, in Brussels to delay legislation? It's not a delay tactic. I think that what we, I think we need to assess what the Commission is trying to achieve with the DSA, and that's to set up a framework on how to tackle the uh, content moderation, online service provision, how to update the current uh, framework that we had from two decades ago to what's workable with the current environment. And we can't do that and be nimble enough to be able to go into detail if we try and add everything into the framework. So the framework has to just create exactly that, the contours, and then everything else has to be filled in through vertical legislation. I don't see it as a delay tactic. I just think that actually then we can do the job in a better way uh, because we can go much more into detail on the vertical issues through specific legislation that complements the framework. But the framework has to remain relatively general if we wanted to... Uh, last the test of time. Mm, okay, I see what you mean. Um, one of the things that you were you were worried about as well in your first positions was um, all the requests for more transparency. And that's something Parliament really uh, beefed up in their draft position for mm -hmm. now. What do you think of that as of now? 
There is a, a request for more transparency in the Parliament text. However, there's also a clarification as to what kind of transparency, which has always been our ask. If there's a, a need for more transparency, to what end and for whom? And I think we've gotten some of those answers. It will be a challenge, I think, for some of the companies to be able to put everything on the table and how to make sure that there isn't conflicting transparency obligations. But I think that we do have more clarity as to what is sought after. You're talking about challenging, I can't imagine it wasn't particularly easy uh, in the last few months. I mean, here in Brussels, we had Facebook whistleblower, a former employee, Francis Haugen, who came to testify. But today, we can't make this kind of independent assessment of Facebook. We have to just trust Facebook says what tr Facebook says is true, and they have repeatedly proved they do not deserve our blind faith. Trust is earned. It's not just you know. Given. She said uh, she had seen uh, the company she worked for, so Facebook, uh, knowingly harming teenage girls' mental health and contributing to the spread of disinformation um, and a hatred on its platform. Just to be fair, Facebook has denied these uh, these accusations, but we've seen kind of uh, what some people have said, a big backlash in the past few months. Some critics have compared big tech to big tobacco companies. You represent many of these companies. So what do you say to such criticism? So the criticism is there for a reason, but that doesn't mean that all of the allegations are necessarily uh, correct. I think Obviously, I can't speak on any one company's behalf, but I can on the industry as a whole. And I think that the thing with working with an industry that's so fast-paced and developing so quickly in areas that are uncharted territory, it does mean that there are learning experiences along the way. Like, for example, you mentioned the impact on disinformation. When we started working as a trade association on disinformation some three years ago, there was no systemic way of dealing with disinformation. And I think that the industry itself is growing as it goes along, but it also is learning as it goes along. So I think we're going to hit areas where things will go wrong. Whether there's malintent or not, I, I would leave that in, in between. I just think that uh, as somebody working with the industry, I've seen the industry move in take major strides in actually trying to act more responsibly. So it's a space that we're very highly active in. But having the hearing of the whistleblower, of course, has had an impact on the work on the current files that we're dealing with because it makes the issue much more emotive. It brings it to the forefront of people's uh, attention. And it meant that focusing on the actual text that we were trying to work on, it made it slightly more difficult because there was, if for want of a better word, a bit of noise around the core issues that we were dealing with within the DSA. But I'm not saying that, it's, that that is wrong. It is the reality of today's environment. And these debates need to be had. Mm. Right. You've been in working in the tech bubble for, for 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like you've seen it all. Like, what are the what are some of your biggest pet peeves that you want to see disappear in 2022? One thing I would like to see is the posturing, uh, if possible. And I think that uh, I'm leaving it intentionally quite vague on who postures because I think everybody does in the bubble to a certain extent. And it detracts from what we're actually trying to achieve, which is come up with better legislation. Because I think that whatever, wherever you might come from, uh, whatever your uh, underlying agenda is, at the end of the day, you believe in the European project as such and that there's a value to add 
And I think that the posturing really detracts from getting the job done. Posturing on what, though? It could be political posturing, could be posturing in terms of flying the flag for a particular industry or a particular interest group and really taking it to headline grabbing as opposed to dealing with the technicalities of, especially in digital policy, let's be honest, it is very technical. And so we very often don't even get to that level of technicality because everybody stays at the high level of making sure they say something as opposed to what they're saying. You don't want to say who you're talking about, but I have to ask, though. <laughs> I, I, I actually think we're all part of that. I think I don't necessarily, and by we're all, I mean all stakeholders, be it institutional stakeholders or industry stakeholders or civil society. I think everybody has a little bit of that, but that's how we've kind of developed over the years. And actually, in that sense, maybe the pandemic has helped us a little bit because we've had to get more creative and be more granular in, in writing things down as opposed to just doing big events and gimmicks and trying to grab attention through other ways. Uh, we've actually had to deal with the text more throughout the pandemic. So you want people to be nerdier? In a way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's your wish for 2022. Isn't it awful that that's, that's as ambitious as I'm getting right now? As if now. Brussels is not technical <laughs> enough. Exactly. You want more terms on impact assessment and Article 16A. Sadly, that's our job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. Thank you, Sierra, for this talk. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Clotilde for bringing us that conversation. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to follow us wherever you are listening right now so you never miss an episode. And remember, you can always get in touch directly with feedback or ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Rim Mumtaz in Paris. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.